Welcome back everyone to the Intro to ST3 podcasts. Tonight I am joined by Vin Varagis, who is one of my consultant colleagues with me at Preston, who is duly accredited in paediatric emergency medicine as well as emergency medicine. And we're going to talk to you about sick and injured children, essentially. This podcast ended up being incredibly long because there's so much to cover, so it's going to be split into two parts. So this is part one. So this is a topic that a lot of trainees find quite daunting, Vin. Why do you think that might be? I think that there could be a few reasons for it. Usually the main reason is that at the stage I remember in my training you haven't seen enough children, so there you are fearful because you're not comfortable with somebody who doesn't give you a full history or isn't able to compartmentalise some symptoms to you or just looks very fragile or breakable. There's also the issue with the parents or the family which can be as taxing as dealing with the children and I can promise you that parents of a child can spot waffle a doctor that's very unconfident more than any other patient so that they will call you out and make you feel uncomfortable. And also, I mean, there is that adage about children being that children are not small adults. Whether you believe in that frame of thought, it's not trying to, um, in a clinical aspect, look at what you do for adults and then do a mini version for children. It's uh, in a lot of things, there is a, a sort of totally different approach. And then it's also going back to that the younger the child is, the more agitated or worried people get and they seem fear that the child is breakable. Yes, so many of you won't have actually seen any paediatric medicine, never mind paediatric emergency medicine, since you were at medical school. A few of you will have had some experience of, of PEM when you've been in CT1, possibly in foundation years, but we, we recognise that the new ST3s don't have an awful lot of experience in this area and that's part of the reason why they're a bit anxious about starting the year. And for those of you who don't have children, it's probably even scarier than for those of you who do have children or have friends or family who've got small children because the idea of picking up a small child and the fear that you might actually break it is something that's really quite real to a lot of people, I think, at the beginning of this year. I think you're right, it's understandable. I mean. You don't have to have children to be a good doctor who assesses children but if you do it, it makes the learning curve a lot easier uh, and you feel more comfortable and, and I tell all my trainees the difference between myself and a trainee is not the knowledge I have of paediatrics I've just physically seen more children than they have and that's the that's the difference in the confidence I have with assessing children and even I get scared at times as well compared to a trainee starting out. It is literally experiential. It is the amount of children that you see that makes you more confident. I think that's the added bonus as well of having to spend time doing purely paediatric emergency medicine. Just repeated exposure to children, whether whether they're sick or whether they're really not that sick. And there are certain things you'll learn from that that you'll actually take not only into your future career, but you'll take into your home lives as well. None of my friends had children when I did my premiere. I now have multiple godchildren and I am more than happy with looking after and picking up and all that kind of stuff with my godchildren because of the experience that I had doing paediatric emergency medicine. So it gives you some life skills as well as makes you a little bit less scared of seeing sick kids. It does and 
whether you meet other godchildren or when you become a parent yourself, you you suddenly realise why. You know, when you first take a history of a, a neonate or a, a very young child, you wonder why parents are obsessed with feeding and how much a child's drank or eaten, which you think, come on, why, why do we need that detail? But once you learn about it, once you become a parent yourself, you realise how obsessive and how important that can be. Okay, then. So you've mentioned that children are not just little adults and that some of the things that we do to children and the ways in which we see them is is somewhat different so I think it might be worthwhile going through some basic principles of how to assess and manage both an injured child and a sick child that's no problem so if we think in general both approaches it's age dependent so how you approach a infant to how you approach virtually a teenager adult it varies completely and uh, your comfort level dealing with probably the older end of the spectrum is better than the younger. And we have, with both assessments, you have the basic physiological parameters in terms of uh, observations and pulse and respiratory rate. Uh, and that's important to know, but it's not something that I have in, on, in my head. Uh, it's something that we look up and you know use, use the age-appropriate charts to find out. The other principle is... The younger the child is, most of the examination is by looking. So when you're approaching an ill or an injured child, most of the information you get is through what you can see, both in terms of signs, but also in terms of the behaviour of the child and the parent as well. And particularly, let's say, a really young child, most of the respiratory examination is really about the work of breathing, the respiratory effort, which you can see, as opposed to the the odd wheeze that you might be able to hear if you put a, a stethoscope on. So if we deal with the um, approach to the, the, the sick child, as so the non-injured child, we've talked about dealing with the child and being wary of uh, the age of the child. Um, we've talked about the general appearance of the child and of the behaviour of the child and uh, you know the interaction with parents. I think broad sort of principles are, in terms of the assessment, a good set of OBS counts for a lot. So if you've got an incomplete set of observations or you're concerned that uh, they might not have been done by a nurse or a colleague who's uh, used to dealing with children, they, you know, it, it's vital that uh, uh, you've got a full set of observations and they're done properly. In terms of the time spent, the initial examination or interaction with the child when I go in is the initial pleasantries. What I'm doing is observing, as we said, what the child is doing, depending on the age, what they're physically doing or walking or moving, looking at the interaction with mum and sort of just getting a general idea rather than rushing in with multiple questions about what they've come in with and trying to pin them down to anything. Time spent looking and uh, taking that information is is very valuable. I think the other really useful thing about that initial assessment time when you go in and you're introducing yourself to the parents or the guardians and to the child is that trainees often worry that they are scared of children and they don't know how to see children properly but you need to remember that children are also often scared of other adults that they haven't met before and they've not interacted with before and that initial period of pleasantries 
can give them the opportunity to realize that you're not a scary person and that if they see their parents or guardians interacting well with you it makes it more likely that the rest of the consultation will go more smoothly i completely agree it's if you watch other people who've seen a lot of children that initial time spent as you say both sides getting used to each other there's a skill in that and there's a skill in how you approach that and when it goes well and people become comfortable then you'll see the rest of the consultation happening smoothly if time isn't spent and people are in a, a hurry just to rush in and you know see the child and you know get into the questions then you lose that and what you think you're doing is to try and speed the consultation the consultation takes far longer than it would have if you'd spent that few minutes at the beginning just to uh, make everybody comfortable with each other yes a child that's upset and that's grouchy and that doesn't want to interact with you is going to be a lot harder to assess than a child that you spent a little bit of time interacting with to start with and trusts you and is then happy to interact with you yeah and in terms of the general assessment i'm i'm not going to go into an a to e examination thing it, it's something that you will know that the physical bits of what's in an a what's an e in terms of general principles probably what people most worried about are the younger children the infants the neonates uh, the toddlers and in terms of examining them one you have to at least till the age of two if not beyond you will have to strip them naked to look front and back and examine them properly at some stage during the examination. It is not a peek under the baby grow, have a quick peek under the nappy sort of examination, looking for rashes, particularly particular spots. If you've talked to enough emergency physicians, there is always the case where there's a couple of particular spots that's been found uh, and then they've progressed rapidly but if you didn't find them by looking at the back and front and stripping the child down then you would have easily missed it secondly it's an opportunity and it's one of those things with any age children you have to have safeguarding in the back of your mind if you don't think about it you won't consider it and in the majority of children there's no safeguarding issue but if you strip the child uh, completely then you start seeing the bruises or something that's odd and it also helps you to examine particular respiratory system and everything else and get that get all the visual cues processed properly rather than it can be nowhere near like you see sometimes the adult approach of the stethoscope slightly sneaked under the uh, which is also poor in adults uh, under you know in between a couple of buttons or asking them to lift the top halfway up so it's very important to strip the child sort of completely naked for that examination I think lots of parents feel reassured because you are examining their child fully and so it then sets their mind at rest that you're not going to miss anything as well because parents are only going to bring their children to you if they're worried about them. If they have no concerns about that child, why would they bring them to you in the first place? So if the parents or the guardians think that this child is ill, they are not going to mind the fact that you've stripped everything off them and then you've had to ask somebody else to put the baby grow on because you've never put one on before. They're actually going to be a lot happier that you have examined that child thoroughly and made sure that you've not missed anything. And I always know if I'm going to review a child at a training or somebody else has seen 
that if they look pristine and they in terms of their clothes and they haven't been examined properly because after a child's been examined by a doctor with the best will in the world they the baby go and everything it doesn't never goes back quite the way it was when they left their house no despite how hard you try <laughs> <laughs> and um, and obviously the easiest method actually is to ask the parents to strip the child aids quicker and the child will be more uh, sort of uh, comfortable the second thing I would say about young children neonates in particular is uh, get used to handling them pick them up you know parents are not going to be worried about you picking their child up okay you get so much information from the feel of a baby and is their tone right do they move in the correct way that you pick them up and actually that pattern recognition is only something that you learn by handling lots of children um, but it gives you a phenomenal amount of information definitely and if you um you know, we've all been in that position where the more children, most of paediatric emergency medicine is being comfortable with what a, a normal well child looks like or feels like or it presents like. Because the majority of your children will be completely fine. But if you haven't examined enough of them, picked enough of them up, then you won't notice that. The other thing with neonates is get used to feeling for their femoral pulse. So in neonates, to try and diagnose a cardiac type presentation is difficult. Fortunately, through pregnancy scanning and baby checks and something, the, the, unless the child has come from a different country and not going through the same sort of natal checks and prenatal checks, the chances of you finding a cardiac baby are, are diminished. But if you don't get used to feeling for femoral pulses, you won't know when they're not there or absent. And so I would, as a routine, always feel for that. You know, even if you're not concerned about that, so you know what, you know what a femoral pulse feels like, and how it feels like, because it is an important part of the examination. In some ways, it's the same principle of how we learnt any examinations throughout medical school, which is that you need to have a good experience of what normal is like, so that you can pick up abnormal signs when you come across them. And we just don't have that experiential learning on the paediatric side of things. So part of the point of this year is to give you exposure to lots of children who have normal examinations. And then when you do find something that's a little bit weird or a little bit not quite as it should be, then an alarm bell will ring and you will know that that's not a normal examination of a child. Yes, exactly. And also the same with feeling femoral pulses. I would get used to feeling fontanelles. You'll see that if they're crying, it's almost impossible to feel their fontanelle because it will feel full because they're agitated. They're not going to break. Till you feel what normal feels like, then it's difficult to have an appreciation when you go, is that sunken? Is that full? Is that... So handle the baby, feel for the femoral pulses, feel for the fontanelle, get used to looking at the child, looking front and back, you know, stripping the child off. In terms of the history aspect, the younger they are, the more detailed the history, I would say. Because if you want to be a paediatrician, if they're 11 and you want to know what they're doing at school and the odd bits of interaction, that's great. It might help you as well. But in a young child, in terms of a neonate, the history is more detailed than you think. For example, feeding history. So if I ask uh, a trainee, so tell me how, how the child's feeding and they go well they've been a bit less on their feeds and not taking much on their 
uh, breast milk. You know, the sort of detail you need in that is, are they breast or bottle fed? If they're being breastfed, um, how long are they latching onto the breast? Does bum feel that they're actually taking any of the breast milk? When they're finishing, is there milk left or is it just as though the, the breast is overflowing, you know, as though they haven't fed? If they're bottle fed, how many ounces? How many do they feed? How, how, how many times a day do they normally feel? How many ounces? And how many ounces have they taken? Yeah, so it's important to pick up on the difference between what is normal for them and what isn't normal for them as well because you'll find variance from one child to another of the same age yeah so you you need to and this is why it's helpful that parents are slightly obsessed with things like how their children feed and how many times they vomit and those sorts of things because what you're looking for is you're looking for a difference from what is normal from that child to what is occurring in this episode of illness yes and also with young children in terms of key questions to ask is about their nappies whether they're wet or dry and uh, the parents give an idea of this is is a normal weight are they dry are they not peeing at all in other parts of the history is you know the sort of the, the birth history is important particularly looking for risk factors for sepsis so asking specifically about prolonged rupture of membranes so they've had a rupture of their uh, membrane for more than 24 hours before they've sort of delivered. Has mum ever been tested positive for group B strep in terms of a swab if she's had discharge or anything during pregnancy? After baby was born, did the baby or mum need antibiotics? All those sort of things will uh, help you decide about risk factors for what this child might have. And then what I find with the history with children, I find it in adults as well, you need to also have some idea of some differentials that might be appropriate for that child, for that age group, and ask questions around it. Yes, you do need that time, open questions where you're trying to feel things, you know, what's going on, but you definitely need uh, some fixed diagnosis that you want to exclude, rule in or rule out, or you're not sure. And particularly for the neonates, the the six-week-old, the four- to six-week-old neonate is one of the most difficult patients to manage. So your your differential can be this child will always present in the same way, whatever their diagnosis is. They will be irritable. They'll be off their feed. They might be vomiting. They might be a bit more drowsy. But that doesn't give you any differential of what's going on. And so you have the sort of things you have at that age are, is this sepsis? Is there a temperature or does mum feel that the child is hot, which is equally as valid. You have to remember mum is virtually spending 24 hours a day with the child. And if she feels the child's hot, it it probably is hot. Yeah, it'd be very, very brave to listen to a parent tell you that their child is hot at home and because they've got a normal temperature in the department to dismiss it. You really need to take those sorts of clues very seriously. Definitely. And for example, in America, that would be counted as the child having a temperature and they would go through a full septic screen based on sort of the parents feeling that the child is hot. Risk factors during pregnancy for sepsis is also quite important. The other thing to have is metabolic conditions. So I, even as a paediatric emergency consultant, I'm not going to pick up some very obtruse sort of uh, metabolic condition or 
genetic condition looking at baby and trying to spot some sort of features that might think oh that this baby has something more specific going on it comes down to exposure again that because we're not we're not paediatricians, so yeah. we don't see these sorts of children in clinics and see clustered groups of them. So actually things that have very subtle signs, we're not really likely to pick up on to give a specific diagnosis. But we might be able to put them within a group of metabolic conditions that we then need to keep a little bit of an eye out for. The key thing for considering metabolic is not for you to try and think of some metabolic conditions or name them, uh, which uh, even I struggle, uh, even at this stage. The only reason for thinking of that is when you're taking blood, you need to take an ammonia level, okay? And if you think about metabolic, you'll, you'll do that. And if that comes back high, then you've got a virtually a diagnosis of what's going on. If you don't think about it and take that blood test in that age group, you could be meandering quite a bit to try and find what's going on with the child. The other thing is safeguarding. So shaking babies, babies who have bleeds on their brain present in the same way. There might be some obvious clues like bruising or something else when you strip baby down, but usually, sometimes it is that they haven't responded to other forms of treatment. So you treat them like a septic child and they're not improving and it just doesn't fit right. And then they, they will have a CT scan or some other imaging to sort of find out what's going on. But again, it's a differential that you need to have, you know, in your mind. Sometimes you'll find those clues when you're doing investigations for another reason so you might be doing imaging because you're looking for one of your other differential diagnosis and that might actually show up something that flags it up then as a non-accidental injury so you need to keep that in your mind the entire time cynical though that seems so even if you if you find one diagnosis it doesn't rule out a non-accidental injury and then if you're getting imaging back it's something that just to keep at the back of your mind to see if it fits with the imaging that you see. Yeah, definitely. And um, as I said, the majority of the non-accidental injuries that I've seen in really young kids, neonates, have not been obvious from the, the start. It's only when somebody's got that differential, they're going, well, nothing else seems to be working, and we should have had some improvement by now. We've got this differential, let's investigate that. And the other one at that age group is surgical courses, uh, particularly classically four to six weeks is pyloric stenosis. And then on a brief addendum, never ask parent whether the child has had projectile vomiting, okay? Because that just puts a term in their mind. You ask them to describe the vomit. You know, projectile vomit is when the child vomits and the parents describe that, I mean, it could have hit the wall two metres away that's projectile vomit. Not that they've had a big vomit and the whole baby grow and everything is covered in vomit. The lay understanding of certain terms, especially in paediatric emergency medicine, is quite different from the medical aspect. So projectile vomiting is definitely one. And the other one is bile. When they vomit up bile, often parents mean that to be gastric juices, so a yellow colour, whereas we mean it to be green. Bile is green. And so you need to, if parents tell you, even if you don't ask what the kind of vomiting is and parents come back with projectile vomiting or they come back with the vomited bile, you need to then actually check what their understanding of that term is. So don't just take it as read, make them describe exactly what they mean. And so those are, that's just the example of the neonate of some differentials that you have to have in the back of your mind. 
but particularly the safeguarding elements you know should be there in sort of every consultation in the back of your mind because you think you won't miss it but the presentations are varied it depends on how you're feeling depends how believable some parents are the take-home message is that the majority of children don't have any safeguarding issues but if you don't have that as a differential you will miss the ones that might yes and i think there's often a lot of anxiety about raising safeguarding issues so i remember when i was in st3 seeing a particular case that was quite clearly a safeguarding problem and feeling very anxious about the fact that i was going to have to bring it up with the um, guardian of this child that there was a safeguarding issue that i was concerned about and actually what we tend to find nine times out of ten obviously not all of the time is that if they've presented with that child to the emergency department and there is a safeguarding issue going on at home then often they will present because they know there's a safeguarding issue and actually they're looking for help the guardians are looking for help for that child or they they just don't know what to do next or they realize things have escalated and got out of control and being frank and honest with them about the fact that you are looking at this as a safeguarding possibility the parents take it very well and even if you if you suspect it's a safeguarding thing and it turns out not to be again the parents or guardians they often take that well because they know that you're looking out for other people's children so don't be frightened about having it as one of your differential diagnoses and don't be frightened about talking to parents and guardians about it i completely agree and unless you think something criminal is going to happen by if you if you start talking about safeguarding you're worried that they're going to run away with the child or do something which is so rare i've not seen it yet okay but touch wood but the whole thing about being honest is very important the worst thing you can do is to admit the child and tell parents oh we just need pediatrics to have a little bit of a look uh, check a few things out and they go to the pediatric ward and the pediatric team come and go well we need to talk about doing a safeguarding child protection medical yeah, that's then, not a very nice surprise for the parents to have. <laughs> so it's uh, and it's happened unfortunately, and it, and it will probably continue to happen because people worry. Parents are happy being told the truth and being being upfront, and uh, and and they appreciate that. And a phrase I sometimes use is that if somebody brought my child to A and E with these this presentation or these injuries, I would expect them to be worried and be referred up to the paediatric doctors for them to assess fully because we have a duty of care. Um, and I may not feel, I don't know how I'd feel about it, but I knew the right thing was being done. So phrases like that and being honest that they're going up. If there is a medical concern as well, yes, tell them about it. But if it's purely safeguarding, tell them you're being admitted just so that it, this can be looked at further from a safeguarding point of view and be honest. And as you said, Kirsten, uh, it's only very occasionally anybody gets upset about that they get more upset if you spend five ten minutes beating them out of the bush and then in passing say oh by the way we need to or not tell them at all yeah i think most guardians appreciate the fact that we are there to look after children and to make sure that nothing untowards is going on with every child that we see and so they almost feel reassured that if we're doing that then, 
then we'll do that with other children who might actually have something going on and it gives them a little bit more faith and belief in what we do as a profession. So that's it for part one of this podcast. We continue with Vin's tips on paediatric emergency medicine in part two.